Good afternoon, London. It is your Tuesday afternoon. I'm calling it Fake Monday because <laughs> we've just come off of the uh, Canada Day long weekend. I hope everyone had a lovely time full of lots of rest and relaxation and uh, just time spent with family and friends, hopefully. I hope you all had a nice time. I did. I was lucky to uh, see a bunch of my friends over the weekend. Also saw my parents, hung out uh, by the pool, drank some vino. You can't go wrong. I mean, it was a pretty ideal long weekend. So, And the weather. Oh, my gosh. It was so beautiful. Just worked out entirely. So uh, I'm very thankful for the weekend that was. I'm happy to be back here at work with all of you this week. And the lovely Mike Stubbs is on vacation. Uh, We were kind of talking a little bit about that on Friday afternoon, teeing up uh, this week and everything that's going on and how I was going to be in here. So I will be with you from today through Thursday. So we'll we'll uh, have a chat about all the things that are happening here in the city and uh, across the country, around the world even. Uh, we'll have a, a bit of a, uh, you know, it'll be uh, an eclectic vibe over the next uh, couple of days. And uh, today is no exception. We're starting off talking about uh, Canada Day celebrations here in town. It was a busy week. Uh, we'll also be talking about um, water safety, which is a, a cause close to my heart. Uh, if you know me, you know that that is the case. I'll tell you why in a little bit. Uh, also, how much trust do you put in our politicians? Well, we're going to talk to Dave Korzynski from Angus Reid. They have new survey results out that do not have good numbers for politicians, especially our federal group. Uh, yeah, so there's there's tons of stuff going on. Also talking about insulin prices and a group of Americans who came up from uh, the States to London specifically to buy insulin. Mm-hmm. So we'll talk more about that. But first of all, let's get back to the weekend that was and the fantastic events that we had for Canada Day here in London. Down on Dundas Place, as we have begun and finished the first two blocks of Dundas Place, it's being put to good use. And uh, we had lots of stuff going on over the weekend. There was the night market on Sunday, uh, which was very popular. Tons of people were downtown. Then also, obviously, the big event yesterday was uh, all of the Canada Day celebrations. And joining me on the line is Savannah Sewell, the manager of Dundas Place, to talk more about what went on. Savannah, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. So it's been a busy weekend for you and the folks down at Dundas Place. I saw lots of great uh, social media posts about everything that went on this weekend. How does it feel to have it all wrapped up? Good. We just uh, packed up the last few things down here this morning, and uh, we're feeling we're feeling pretty good. It was uh, it was a lot of work, but it was amazing, uh, and it was you know it's. The success for us is to watch the people walking through the street with smiles on their faces. So it was it was a win. It was amazing. Absolutely. And it's funny because over the last, you know, several weeks, we've we've seen different events happening at Dundas Place, the Jurassic Park parties with the with the Raptors viewing mm-hmm. parties and now Canada Day festivities. And even on Saturday night, we had uh, uh, the or rather Sunday night, the, the night market that was happening there. This really does seem to be case in point exactly why everyone was so excited about the idea of Dundas Place, isn't it? Yeah, I think we'd like to call that proof of concept. Um, yeah, it, it feels really good. This is exactly what it was built for and designed for, and all those uh, those meetings and, and the planning. So it feels it feels really great to see it in action. And uh, yeah, we're we're really excited and thrilled to have some really great partners to help us pull these things off. So uh, the London Heritage Council it was the was the lead essentially on this uh, Canada Day event. It was supported from like. An event standpoint, and we're really happy that, uh, you know, we got to work together and, and see this thing come to life. It was just, uh, yeah, it was awesome. 
Absolutely. So now looking forward, uh, you know, we still have construction on, on part of Dundas Place going on. Uh, but what's what, what are the next steps? What's what's next on the agenda, I guess, even for events wise? What's on tap? <laughs> sure. Well, we're working on it. I mean, we're still working out the kinks, which is, uh, you know, the great thing about being flexible and having such a flexible space. So we have an event coming up. We're uh, working with Taco Fest. So that's the next thing in August. Um for two days, so we'll be working on uh, on that, and then just trying to final up the finalize the policies and work on the sort of uh, back end stuff, the the stuff that makes these events run. You know, working on uh, the city side and, and figuring out what we're going to do. You know, from an administration standpoint, so uh, it's it's kind of you might call that quote unquote the boring work, but it's very necessary work. So uh, quietly working behind the scenes to, to make this as functional and inclusive uh, as possible. So, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. As you said, you know, it is it is that background work uh, that makes the stuff up front run smoothly. It's it's a lot of a lot of work that people don't realize goes into it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we've got really amazing properties like Victoria Park and Harris Park that we're used to using for events. And, and those um, you know, are such a integral part to our community and our city. And so at some point, those policies had to get created for those places, right? So we're, we're hoping that, you know, we can do this. Well, we know that we have to do the same for, for Dundas Place. So we're just, we're working, we're sort of doing two things at once, right? We're trying to, we're trying to get it all done uh, while, we're, while we're also testing out the water. So it's been a really great opportunity for us as well to, to test it. So, yeah, it's been it's been busy. <laughs> no doubt. And it, it kind of, um, as as you said before, it's it's proof of concept uh, from what we've been able to see so far in the last little while. And also, it, it's exciting to think of what it'll be like when it's all finished, when next year, I believe it's next year, that things should be totally wrapped up uh, with the second phase of it uh, between Richmond yeah. and uh, Wellington. So that it must be exciting to look at that raw potential and think of what's coming down the line. Oh, honestly, last night, might have been closer to the morning <laughs> when I was, you know, doing my final my final rounds. I was just thinking, you know, I'm doing my final check of the two blocks, and it was it was really wild to think that, you know, next year we're going to be looking at four blocks and uh, and how amazing and how much bigger and the scope is going to grow, uh, even just for an event like Canada Day. Um, here's to hoping, right? So, yeah, it, it's uh, it's a bit surreal to be honest, because I know there's so much talk about it, and it's sometimes hard to to see the final picture when we're in the middle of construction. But uh, this past, this, you know, these past couple of weeks, like you talked about Jurassic Park followed by this event have really helped us see it and uh, believe it and, and understand um, what it can be. And so, uh, yeah, we're always, we're always open to ideas. So let, let me know if you've got an idea. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's it's fun too to like talk with people about the reaction uh, to what's been happening downtown. And on, on Sunday when uh, I was heading out uh, to see some friends, we were in a we were in a vehicle on our way, a cab on our way down there. And, and we kind of turned towards uh, the downtown and they said, oh, what's going on there? And I said, oh, it's the night market. Uh, but now I feel like it's going to be so busy in the future that it'll, it could be any number of items that are going on. It'll be hard to keep everything straight. That's right. And that's that's an exciting thing to think about that our calendar is so jammed. We don't even know how to keep up, but we'll just, we'll just chip away at it. We don't want that right now, but it does feel there's something really magical about standing on that street with these beautiful new light standards that give off such a beautiful glow. And there are vendors and people. I mean, this is exactly what we want. We want our community to use it. We want people to, to experience it. And uh, it's just, 
I guess I shouldn't keep saying the word magical, but it's a really, I don't know, it's just a really great feeling to see it, to see it come alive. Absolutely. It is It is like a transformation. You know, it could be uh, sort of like Cinderella when she gets changed over from her, her rags to riches sort of a thing. And it, it's a nice it's a nice moment because it takes a long time for it to happen. But once it's finally done, it's like a house renovation, right? You walk in and yeah. you kind of forget about the disaster that was there before. In this case, it was, you know, a, a great space that Londoners used all the time. But now it's just been given a spruce up makeover. Yeah, yeah. And we're working through it together, right? There's there's lots at, at play here and we're um we're just really trying to do the best we can to to work through that and uh yeah, see the final product and you know, we're getting there and it's good. It's all it's all good in the end, you know, after like I said, after the last couple of days. It's taking a deep breath and, you know, feeling good about what we did and just getting ready for the future. Absolutely. Well, Savannah, thank you so much for your time today. Congratulations to you and your team and everyone on Heritage Council uh, who put on such a fantastic event for Canada Day. And uh, and over the weekend with the night market, it, it sounds like it was absolutely fantastic. And again, congratulations. Thank you so much. Well, we need to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're staying kind of on that summer theme, long weekend theme. But it's unfortunately a story uh, that is, you know, it, it has it's, it's tragic, really, because it has to do with water safety and individuals who quite sadly passed away over the long weekend across Canada uh, just because of, you know, mishaps that happened on the water, completely preventable mishaps. And this is a, a topic that's close to my heart. I'm a former City of London lifeguard, and it's something that I always try to talk about as much as possible. Possible when I have a chance and uh, you betcha on a week like this when I'm filling in and we're at the start of summer I'm gonna talk about it so we are going to take a quick break when we come back we'll talk to Barbara Byers from the Life Saving Society about what's gone on and what we can do to help prevent water tragedy tragedies that's coming up on 980 CFPL on London Live Welcome back to the program. We're all trying to get back into the swing of things this week after our long weekend maybe you spent a lot of time at the beach. I know a few people who went out to uh, enjoy the sun and sand and water. I was around a pool for a couple of the days and that was really lovely. I always enjoy that. Very thankful uh, to those who let me camp out there in the poolside with a drink and uh, hang out. So that's always lovely. But there's something really important that we have to remember when we are enjoying time poolside by the, you know, lakefront or oceanfront, we have to have a healthy respect for water and also a respect for our own limitations. Uh, And that means being careful of your water safety and just not taking any chances, not doing anything stupid. Uh, And also just, you know, never underestimating the power of water and what can happen. Now, sadly, over the long weekend, we had a few incidents across the country. One uh, somewhat close to home, uh, a young boy, six years old, died after an incident in a pool in Fort Erie, which is kind of in the Niagara region, uh, for anyone not familiar with the geography there, and uh, very sadly passed away. The incident uh, happened during a large Canada Day backyard party, uh, and uh, someone noticed the little guy around uh, 4.30 on Saturday afternoon. He was in the pool, unresponsive, and uh, later confirmed deceased by police in that region. Then out west in Alberta, in that area, there were three unrelated drownings by the sounds of it. One individual had happened in Banff. We're going to talk more about uh, both of those cases, but joining me on the line to do that is Barbara Byers. She's the public education director with the Life Saving Society and an expert on what we need to be doing to keep everybody safe around the water. Barbara, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us this afternoon. Happy to do so, Jess. 
Now, this, uh, as I mentioned off the top of the sh- uh, the segment, is you know a, a a story and that comes up all the time. Water safety, especially in the summertime, and it's it's a um, a cause close to my heart as a former lifeguard. Uh, but we sadly had a number of fatalities uh, across uh, across the country this long weekend. One of which was a, a little boy, six years old, uh, in Fort Erie backyard pool situation. Uh, you know, after a long weekend, what do you think when you hear of these stories that come in? And and obviously, while you're on your your vacation, you're hearing stories in the news uh, with your position in Life Saving Society. How does that make you feel when you hear this? Um, so sad. Uh, you know, when I hear about any drownings, um, and I guess particularly so when it's a young child, a six-year-old child is is very young, and uh, you know, my my heart really goes out to the family members because. Um, You know, most drownings are preventable, and when I hear of the stories like I did this weekend, I I feel so sad for the family, and I I just um, hope that others, after hearing these very sad stories, will realize that um, perhaps we can learn from them, and uh, and hopefully um, people will be aware, and uh, hopefully it will inspire people to to, make sure that in their behavior that they keep themselves and their children safe. Now, there are two specific instances that, uh, you know, I think kind of touch on um, their, their case in point of things that the Life Saving Society tries to really hammer home in terms of safety messages. Uh, I'd like to start with the case of, of the young child in, in Fort Erie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sounds like this this little guy was at a, a backyard um, a barbecue or party for Canada Day and very sadly wound up in the pool and uh, was, was found non-responsive and, and ultimately passed away afterwards. Uh, but this is one of those situations that we all find ourselves in, backyard parties, uh, lots of little ones running around, and it's so easy for people to just get a bit distracted and not see what's happening right in the water in front of them. And it's it's one of those those um, cases where we can't be distracted, right? Well, I agree. And um, I think it's, it's kind of a myth uh, uh, that many people believe that uh, they'll hear someone uh, get into a difficult situation and drown, that they'll hear someone yell, help, help, help me, I'm drowning. But the reality is that that's a myth. It's not true. That's Hollywood. Uh, when a person is drowning, their airway fills with water. And what that means is they, they can't speak and um, they can't breathe. So it happens very silently and very, very quickly. So uh, because of that, um, it's really important to keep your eyes on your children as a caregiver, as a parent, or with with other adults that you're swimming with. You can't assume that if you are doing something else, such as barbecuing or getting other children ready or getting organized or, or conversing with people, that you will see them drown. Now, lifeguards, and just you as a former lifeguard know this, you're trained to look at the transition between a person happily swimming and a person drowning. And lifeguards look at the eyes and they can see the change from a child or a person swimming, say, vertically, uh, sorry, horizontally in the water to... um, to drowning, where they often go vertically and they can see it in their eyes. So um, it's so important for um, parents and caregivers and, and all of us in a backyard pool setting or the beach is to designate uh, a person to be on guard for each child in the water. And uh, just as lifeguards are watching attentively to see any changes in behavior, um, parents and caregivers need to be designated maximum two children for one adult, uh, but ideally one for one 
one, and we have a an on guard card we have, and we use that as so parents and caregivers could um, hand off as lifeguards would in a in a lifeguard supervisor say, okay, I'm going here, your turn, you're on guard now, while I go in the house or I do something else. So it's so easy to be distracted, and and when you take you know distracted. To a different level, when we think of things like phones or or conversations with other people, we know from research that we can only concentrate on one thing at a time. Like we can't um, be blowing up a, a, a water toy and lifeguard our children at the same time. We can't be barbecuing and lifeguarding. We can't be having a conversation and lifeguarding. So um, we can only do one thing at one time. So as parents and caregivers, it's our job to watch our children all the time and to be their lifeguard. Absolutely. It is, uh, you know, the the constant refrain within arm's reach when you've got very young ones, make sure you're in the water with them. Uh, Don't just think that you can sit on the deck reading a book. No, be in the water with your little ones uh, to make sure that if they get into a spot of trouble, which as we know, and as we've said, is so easy to, that can happen in a second, uh, that you're right there able to assist them immediately. Um, Yeah, the the other uh, story that that I was reading up on happened out in Banff in Alberta, and it's sounds like there was a gentleman, an adult, who was uh, paddleboarding and fell off of his board, was not wearing a PFD, uh, so that's a life jacket, um, and was not a strong swimmer, and he never resurfaced. So that's another case where we're not talking about young ones anymore. We're talking about adults, and uh, we as adults are not immune to uh, the perils of water, and we need to make sure that we're, we're keeping in mind our own limitations and being safe. Absolutely, yeah, Jess. And, and a pa- send a paddleboard. The, the law requires you to have a life jacket with you if you are going out of a little bay area. Uh, but you really need to have one all the time. To- have one all the time. You also need to have a leash attached to your um, to your ankle. Um, and and the reason for that is many people may may not be a strong swimmer, but they have that confidence that they're on a raft, they're on a stand up paddleboard, or they're on a plastic blow up raft, and that gives them the confidence that they can go farther out. But if they're separated from that paddleboard or that uh, blow-up raft or um, any type of uh, float floating device, then um, they may be in terrible, uh, a terrible situation or peril because they can't swim. So you, you should not put yourself in a situation where you're beyond your uh, ability unless you have flotation um, device on. So um, there's some great, great life jackets, and uh, I just bought one for my daughter-in-law last week uh, that's an uh, inflatable life jacket. It's like a waist pack. It looks like a fanny pack, and it's designed for stand-up paddleboard. So you just put it around your waist so it's not like it's a big bulky thing, and it's got a pull cord that you can pull uh, to inflate it if you fall in the water and your, uh, and your board is um, it's not attached to you. So it's it's just so, so important that you, you don't get beyond your own ability to get to safety if you're not a strong swimmer. And flotation devices like that are certainly something that can um, help you uh, get yourself back to where you need to be. Absolutely. It, it reminds me of like helmets, right? Often yeah. back in the day, like when I was a kid, it's like, oh, helmets aren't cool. But you know what? That's what's going to protect your noggin and your brain. So, well, exactly. You know. And often these things like a life jacket in a boat or a life jacket on a stand-up paddleboard are, are like insurance. Like you have it just in case and hopefully you don't need it. And uh, it's not going to take away from the fun. Like, you know, my kids are all in their late 20s and 30s and they all wear helmets when they're riding their bikes now. But when they were teenagers, they didn't want to because... 
didn't think it was cool. And now, you know, they put sunscreen on and they wear bike helmets, which were two things that I used to, you know, nag them about when they were younger. So these are things for, um, you know, as insurance just in case. And, it might, you know, there's another drowning in Ontario in uh, the Muskoka area, Gravenhurst, where a family was out on a raft and, and they got separated from the raft and found out, told later that they were not strong swimmers. So again, it's so easy with a, an, on a beautiful summer day on one of those plastic rafts to really get far out from shore because you can have a little bit of a breeze, a little bit of a, a current or waves, and bam, you could be like 30, 40 feet away. And even if you are a strong swimmer, sometimes it's hard to get back because it's hard to push against that. So um Really, really be careful that you aren't beyond your skill level and um, take the opportunity to learn to be a strong swimmer so you can have even more fun in the water. Absolutely. Well, Barbara, I think this was a great, uh, you know, just a refresher for anyone as we head into the summer season about water safety. And we thank you so much for your time today. You're very welcome. Thanks, Jess, for calling. Bye-bye. So as a former lifeguard, hear my plea. Please, please wear a PFD. And watch your little ones when they are around water or in water. Be within arm's reach. Please, please, please. Okay. That's enough on that from me. Enough enough on my soapbox. We need to take a break for news. When we come back on London Live, we're going to be talking about how much we trust our government and our elected officials. We have uh, a special guest coming on, and that's Dave Korzynski from Angus Reid. That's coming up after the news on London Live. Welcome back to the program on your Tuesday afternoon. We're just after 1.30 here. It's a bit gloomy outside. A little bit of sunshine and blue skies peeking through. But as we heard from Jacqueline LaBelle, there is a special weather statement in effect. Glad that happened now and not over the long weekend. If it's going to happen, let it happen on a workday. Absolutely. Well, we've been talking about, obviously, summer weather, summer activities. And you might not think of political campaigning as a summer activity, but it is this time because... We have a federal election coming up in October, and believe it or not, that's not that far away. So lots of uh, MPs will be out across the country shaking hands, kissing babies, all that stuff, trying to, uh, you know, put faces to names and make an impression. But this new survey that the Angus Reid Institute has put out has some interesting results, and it's talking about whether Canadians really trust their elected politicians. And to talk to us more about the results of this survey, which I find fascinating. We have on the line Dave Korzynski from Angus Reid. Dave, thanks so much for joining us today. No problem, Jess. Thank you for having me. So let's talk a little bit about this survey. Uh, It doesn't seem like Canadians really trust their elected officials. And it has a bit of variation in terms of the level of government when it comes to level of trust. But overall, these stats don't look very good. Yeah, you know, politician is a dirty word uh, still in Canada. Um, we we you, you see this actually quite a bit in, you know, other surveys that different organizations or, or companies do where every once in a while you'll see the top uh, trusted prof- trusted professions list. Um, and, you know, you've always got doctors and nurses and teachers up at the top of that list. And if you look down at the very bottom, um, it's almost always politicians. <laughs> So we uh, we ask Canadians just a simple question, you know, do you think that most politicians um, can be trusted or not? And you get about two-thirds of Canadians saying that they don't think that most politicians can be trusted. And, you know, unfortunately, that, that really holds across the country. The highest level of trust, I would say, is in Atlantic Canada, and I think that speaks a little bit to um, 
the the local nature of politics there a little mm-hmm. bit smaller populations um people are a little easier to kind of get a hold of and we really do see that you mentioned that um it varies by level and i think that you know local politicians are trusted more so but when people think of politician they tend to think you know if i'm think if i'm considering whether or not a politician can be trusted i'm probably thinking about the the highest level you know federal politics and it's very uh, contentious at this time, and you've got a lot of people saying that you know, there's work to do, especially ahead of that election. Absolutely. And it's when you think of the last year, not even last year, if you think back to January, right, it's been a banner six months in terms of uh, bad news stories for politicians, uh, especially here in Ontario. You have the Ford government that's facing, you know, uh, really less than stellar approval rates with the public. Uh, then you have all of, obviously, the drama in Ottawa that's gone on with the SNC lab Avalanche case. And, you know, there's news stories now coming out about uh, political um, appointments uh, to uh, to the courts in, in the East Coast in New Brunswick, ties to Dominic LeBlanc, who's a, a liberal MP. So it's, you know, it's perhaps not surprising that people would feel a little bit jaded right now. Yeah, it's really, um, there's, there's a lot of unforced errors, if you will, in the, mm-hmm. you know, people, people who are uh, saying one thing, doing another, or just, you just, you know, doing things that are uh, objectively kind of uh, happening behind closed doors, and, and it, it appears that they don't want the Canadian public to find out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these are the people, they call them public servants for a reason. You're supposed to be doing things that, above board. And I think um, it's interesting if you look at the, you're talking about, you know, the SNC scandal. That's really that with the, where the federal government is right now, um, you've got, 71% of, of conservatives who say that most politicians can't be trusted. So I think that's um, really kind of um, driving that, the, the political distinction is, is what you've seen at the federal level. But, you know, what's a problem for Justin Trudeau going forward is that um, it, the number who say that most politicians can be trusted it, that are his supporters is, is only uh, about 40% and, and more than half say that most, most politicians can't be trusted. Mm-hmm. So if, if, if they're considering the Liberal Party and they're still with this view that politicians can't be trusted and they see things like even the less scandalous issues like, you know, electoral reform in 2015, we were, we were told that this would be the, the last election under first past the post. And that is clearly not the case uh, going into 2019. So, there's all these issues where I think people um, at various levels of government and in different parties and provinces have, have said they're going to do one thing and then have, for whatever reason, not done that thing. And, and it wears away on trust. Even these smaller things that aren't the SNC scandals um, really do weigh on people that are, are following these issues and are looking for honest voices. So um, I think that's, that's where you've seen um, Elizabeth May make a lot of ground. People tend to trust her a lot more because mm-hmm. she doesn't have this kind of history of promises that are that are kind of strewn behind her. So that's what I'm watching coming in the, the election is who actually is perceived as trustworthy um, in October, because I think that that's just kind of a, a basic issue that is going to be a big one in this in this campaign is the the ethics of government. Massively so. And that leads me to uh, my next point about the data that was uh, uh, collected through the survey was that a third, 32 percent, believe that uh, politicians are primarily motivated by personal gain rather than a genuine desire to serve their communities, which oof, that's that's a tough, uh, I guess, stat to swallow for for politicians. Yeah. And that's it's even exacerbated further by, you know, we ask people 
if they had to pick a camp here, you know, do they think that people who are running for office are doing it to serve their communities for personal gain or, or do they think it's kind of equal parts of either? Um, and you've only got 18% of, of Canadians. Uh, young men are actually the most likely to say that they think people are running to serve their, their communities as a primary purpose. Uh, mm. 27% say that. But, um, you know, you've got, so 80% of Canadians think that there's at least a, at least an equal element of they're doing it for a personal gain or to kind of pursue some sort of career goal or to take the next step. And um, that kind of gets at the, the, the tension in, in political office, which is, yes, you're supposed to be serving the public and it's supposed to be this, this kind of uh, profession where you, you put your own interests aside and, and you're doing what your community wants. And people don't see it that way. Um, maybe they did at a time. I, I'm unable to find data that suggests that they they thought that uh, you know politicians were were completely magnanimous at at a, a current point. But they're certainly not that place anymore. So you've got you know 80 percent saying that there's there's an element of that personal gain. And like you said, one in three who think that's really the only reason. And it's you know it's older men who are most likely to say that. So they're the most cynical with four in ten. Um, saying that, that politicians really are just in it for themselves. It's really interesting to see how these numbers are breaking down. And uh, also, you know, how we how we were talking about uh, how Elizabeth May seems and the Green Party seem to be, um, you know, pulling ahead in, in terms of that trustworthiness scale. And it's it's interesting because I, I saw a headline the other day that said the Green Party is the one to be more concerned about if you're Justin Trudeau than, say, the NDP um, in, in terms of this next election. I mean, it's interesting just to see how the numbers could fall. And, you know, if if the if the Green and NDP split that more leftist vote, then maybe Andrew Shear's conservatives come up the middle there, and, and that's how they they went out in October. It's going to be really yeah, interesting. There's, yeah, there's really um, there's a split right now. You got about three in ten Canadians, depending on the, the survey, um, who say that they're choosing either the NDP or the Greens, and the Greens have really made a lot of headway. We've had them in polling in double digits now um, for the last uh, three or four months, which is really. Uh, quite a high watermark for them. And, and a lot of that is that the environment is a really big issue for a lot of Canadians, and they see her as the reliable voice on that, so they're kind of deferring to her. And a lot of it is is really dissatisfaction with Justin Trudeau and some of the things that he's done and, and people looking for a place to park their votes. So, you know, over the course of the next three months or so, you'll see a lot of those people either harden those positions or maybe drift back. And for the Liberals, really, they're... Their hope at this point is that they have to get, you know, uh, about 5% from each of those groups or 10% from one of them. I think 5% from each is a little more likely um, to kind of drift back to their party. So Justin Trudeau really has that that left of center vote that propelled him in 2015 has kind of abandoned him at this point with and left him with a base that is not enough to really get a majority. And that's why you see the conservatives leading in in some of these so the the communication will be will be really key, I think, to try to even that out with a, a competitive race and four parties now that are really commanding quite a bit of attention nationally. Mm-hmm. It's true, and like I've even heard uh, some of my friends uh, here in, in the London region talking about how they don't know who the heck they're going to vote for in October. Some people are saying they don't plan to vote just because they feel like it's it's not uh, it's not worth it. The system will not really accurately represent what their vote is. Others are talking about voting green uh, as not just like a protest, but well, yeah, I guess it is more of a, that protest vote. And mm-hmm. I think 
think it's going to be very interesting, as you said, like the polling numbers, where the Greens are sitting right now. It'll be it'll be very cool to see how things shape up and uh, interesting for the future of the country. That's for sure. And uh, how people feel about it. Yeah, the 2015 was really um, a historic youth voting turnout. So I think we we may see, um, not to prognosticate too much here, but I think we may see those numbers dip back down. And that's really a problem for Justin Trudeau. He really benefited from the younger vote, particularly the 18 to 24 vote, um, as opposed to even the 18 to 34 vote. Those are those younger voters who are just kind of maybe voting in their first election were quite enthusiastic, and, and some of that was with Stephen Harper. Um, the, the liberals were really good at casting him as the boogeyman, and I think people uh, really got behind that and thought Trudeau was the alternative. And now the ones that do stick around or the first-time voters might be looking at, at Elizabeth May as bringing something new to the table if that's what they're looking for, because uh, Justin Trudeau has uh, it, it has not been a great year. It's not been a great 18 months or so, actually, mm-hmm. if you go back to the beginning of 2018. So, yeah, he's got a lot of work to do, and his party has a lot of work to do right now. And, uh, you know, Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives are just kind of rolling along with their 35 to 38 percent and, and hoping that nothing changes, I think, at this point. Well, we will see what happens out on the campaign trail over the next few months, and uh, we'll see how many barbecues they all get to and how many hands they shake. Oh, yeah, lots of work to be done. Absolutely. <laughs> for sure. Well, Dave, thank you so much for your time today. Dave Korzynski from Angus Reid talking about our level of trust in our elected politicians. Thanks so much for your time. No problem. Thank you. Take care. So we need to take a quick little break. Man, those stats are like, (laughs) they make me sad. And I meant to say this to Dave, actually, that uh, when he was talking about the list of most trusted professions, I feel for the politicians a little bit because guess who's also always down at the bottom of the list in trustworthiness? Journalists, reporters, media. That's fair. I mean, you know what? People should always be of a critical mind when they're reading their news stories or listening in, because that's what we all have to do. As citizens, we need to be critical of what we're taking in, what we're consuming news-wise. But yeah, the bottom three are usually like politicians, journalists, and lawyers. So, so we, have a, we have a tough go of it when it comes to public opinion. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. As I said, we need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about a story that uh, was big over the weekend and Friday. There was a group of Americans who came up to London specifically to buy insulin. So type 1 diabetics, they came all the way to London. We'll tell you why coming up on London Live after this break. Welcome back to the program. We are on London Live. It is your Tuesday afternoon edition of the program. Mike Stubbs is on vacation this week. Well-deserved. The hardest working fella in radio. (laughs) So we hope that Mike is enjoying himself, taking some time at home to relax, put his feet up. He talked about a hammock last week. I hope that he got that hammock. I hope that he's relaxing in it in the backyard before the rain hits. If it hits, I'm skeptical. Hopefully this uh, special weather statement that's in effect eh, just misses us. Fingers crossed. Well, we'll see. So before the break, I mentioned that a group of uh, individuals from the United States came up to Canada over the weekend, the long weekend, and they came with one purpose, and that was to buy insulin. So these individuals are type 1 diabetics, and this is something that I did not really realize until this story kind of broke over the weekend and, and late last week, that insulin in the U.S. is extremely expensive. Yeah. 
So much so that individuals have organized like caravans up to Canada to buy it because it's so much cheaper. Now, this individual who was one of the, uh, I guess, co-organizers of this current uh, trip. Her name is Quinn Nystrom. And I reached out to her. Unfortunately, we weren't able to connect, but she's uh, done a number of tweets about this latest trip. And I'll read you one, which I believe is from yesterday. In fact, yesterday evening, she tweeted this out with a picture of them walking out of presumably a pharmacy or maybe it actually looks like a Walmart maybe location that they're coming out of. And I'll read you the tweet. Quinn wrote, pure joy as we walk out of the pharmacy in Canada, which was here, after buying insulin for 12 times less than in the U.S. Group insulin order in the States, get this, (laughs) $23,000. In Canada, it's $1,900. She says, we have a problem. One in four Americans are rationing their insulin because they can't afford it. And they came to London, obviously, because this is the, the home of Sir Frederick Banting, and uh, he invented insulin. Thank God for that. Uh, you know, like I have a family member who has type 1 diabetes, and she's been on insulin uh, for, for decades and decades since she was a very, very, I believe, young child, in fact, when they diagnosed her. And I just cannot imagine being put in this situation where she would not be able to afford her the basic medicine that she needs to survive. Now, we're hearing all sorts of stories about um, the U.S. southern border where individuals in the camps are going without their health care and their needed medicine. And I know that health care in the States is a whole other beast in terms of being able to afford it. And, you know, people who don't have private insurance or any insurance for that matter have a, a very difficult time uh, being able to get the care that they need. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's it's crazy to me that this is the case, that it was 12 times more expensive. Now, this article from Global News, our colleagues on National Desk, is from May of this year. And, uh, you know, they talked to Quinn Nystrom. And she she said in this, in this story uh, that she bought a nearly identical product in the U.S. One vial of this insulin from Novo Nordisk, it cost $320 and just $30 in Canada. Like, it's nuts. It's nuts that this is the case. Like, I've heard of, of uh, you know, maybe seniors groups uh, in the States doing these caravans in the past. Like, it's, I would imagine that it's not necessarily like a totally new story or a shocker by any means uh, that we have more expensive prices in, 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 in the States than in Canada. But it's, it's shocking to me that it's that much of a discrepancy. It's sort of like um, the story last, last year uh, about the e-commerce kid or a stock trader or whatever, but that uh, bought up the epi pen stocks or not stocks, but I guess the rights to it. And then he jacked up uh, the price for buying EpiPens. It's like this is life-saving medicine. We cannot have it be that people cannot afford to have medicine that they need literally to survive. This is not just a nice to have. This is a need to have, you know, come on. So this story is shocking to me that this is that this is the case, that a, a one vial in the States is 320 bucks. And then in Canada, it's 30. Like, come on now. Guess what, Londoners? We have a caller, and I believe it's Marilyn. The lovely Marilyn has called in. Marilyn, how are you? Well, thank you, dear, and you're doing a great job, as you always do. Oh, thank you so much. That's very sweet of you to say. Now, my husband was a juvenile diabetic. Oh, really? And to type 1. He lost his sight at 39, became blind, and legally blind, Mm -hmm. and... um, his work uh, plan covered some of the costs of the insulin, mm-hmm. and um, I had to make out a sheet, you know, 
and keep track of the amount of insulin that he used, you know, as I bought it, and then the price. And I'd get so much back when I had finished that sheet. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's absolutely criminal that they're charging so much for something to save someone's life. It's terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, my husband was on, on NPH in Toronto, and uh, a diabetes, it can, you can't joke around with that. No, certainly not. You certainly can't, because you're open to heart disease, which he had a heart attack in 93, and then he, he uh, died of cancer. Oh. And I had to... I had to give him his needles, and not e- I'd never even practiced on an orange. Oh. So anyways, well, we went up to classes at St. Joseph's Hospital. I think the lady's name was Dorothy Gibson. She was a marvelous person. Oh. I don't think she's with us anymore. So I learned just, uh, you know, what he could eat and so forth. Mm-hmm. And uh, But he was what you would call a bad diabetic. That's what I call them, a bad diabetic. Oh. But the poor man, you know, he he didn't take it out on anyone when he lost his sight. Yeah. I had to take over everything, and we had to sell so much of the farm, the property. And mind you, now there's houses right up to our house. Right. On Pack Road in the Boswick. Okay. You know where that big church is, that big, um, uh, what do they call it, Forest City? I think uh, so, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm familiar with the name, yeah. Yes, it's a great big church, like an arena back off the road. Well, you can see our house from that church. Mm-hmm. It's on the corner of Pack Road in the Bostwick, and the man that bought it married my daughter. Well, they've since broke up, but anyways, uh, that's the house. Wow. And uh, anyways, uh, you know, we had four small children and a baby when he went blind. So, uh, you know, it was was, uh, quite a challenge, but uh, Prayer Bobby brought us through it, you know. Well, and yeah. and goodly kind people at Lambeth Bible Church. Well, that's wonderful. And, and uh, you know, Marilyn, thank you so much for sharing your story with me and, and with the listeners, because that is the true-to-life impact of diabetes. And, uh, you know, as you say, these are life-saving medications that are so important and for people just like your family, your husband. Uh, and, you know, thank you for calling. And I'm so sorry, I can't chat with you longer. I have to go okay. to news with Jacqueline. Okay, but dear. it was a pleasure. Thank you, you so much for calling. You yourself, too. You as well. Well, thank you so much Bye, for calling. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. But see, that's that's it, Londoners. That is the impact. We have people just like Marilyn who are talking about the importance of this medication. And, uh, you know, good for the folks from the states who came up, the Caravan to Canada. Thanks for doing that and, uh, you know, raising awareness. And we hope that you continue your fight and we see some progress. Okay. I wasn't joking. We are late for news. We have to go talk with Jacqueline LaBelle, who's going to get you updated on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program. This is London Live on 980 CFPL here in London. It's your Tuesday afternoon. Might feel like Monday. You might be discombobulated because of the long weekend. Something else that might discombobulate some people is this most recent meeting between the president of the United States, Donald Trump, and Kim Jong-un, leader of North Korea. They met yesterday and... uh, 
Yeah, it seemed like it was kind of a, a hastily arranged summit. This was their third meeting in person, and it was uh, precipitated by a tweet from the president, Trump. And uh, apparently it even took Kim Jong-un by surprise that this tweet had, had happened, had been sent out into the, into the Internet universe. And they ended up meeting in the DMZ, the Demilitarized Zone, not to be confused with the DMV or TMZ. No, this is the DMZ. And it's, yeah, it's just one of those interesting relationships that President Donald Trump seems to have with uh, certain world leaders. And it seemed like it was a very friendly meeting. And President Trump became the first uh, sitting U.S. president to step into North Korea. He stepped over the border through that DMZ and then stepped right back. Well, it's very interesting. And joining me on the line to talk about this meeting and kind of really get a better sense of what it means is Dr. Elliot Tepper. And he's a foreign policy expert at the McDonnell-Laurier Institute, and he has a vast knowledge of North Korea and its relations. Dr. Tepper, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. Oh, it's a pleasure, Jess. So what did you think of uh, this third meeting then between President Trump and Kim Jong-un? What was your reaction to how this all kind of played out? Maybe first take us through how it was initiated with that tweet. What did you think of that? Well, why he was in the neighborhood is interesting. Uh, this, he was attending the group of uh, 20, the G20, which is a group of the big economic leaders in the world joined by the emerging economies. So it's meant to be a a real powerhouse in terms of guiding the global economy year to year. Japan was the host. And uh, one of the interesting things is that, as you may know, uh, Trump and Shinzo Abe, the leader of Japan, have had a very cordial relationship, too. Mm-hmm. And the host uh, said, you know, glad to have you here, Mr. President. And he said, well, that's fine, except I don't like the way you are handling our bilateral security defense treaty. It's not fair to us. So he even pulled the rug out under Shinzo Abe, his, his Asia whisperer, the person he goes to, uh, apparently, to understand Asia. Then, being in the neighborhood, he went for an official visit to South Korea. Now, South Korea, under uh, President Moon, has been leading the way in trying to maintain some kind of a space or peace initiative, that is, the peace initiative that was launched by North Korea at the time of the Olympics, which South Korea was hosting, Mm -hmm. has been broadened and deepened by South Korea. They, who are on the front lines, that's that's where the missiles are and the artillery are are aimed and the nuclear and biological weapons. So they've been very keen on making sure that there is some kind of step-by-step process, as they see it, facilitating what Trump says he wants, which is good relations with Kim as part of denuclearization. And that, as you know, led to a spectacular first summit. Then there was a second one in in Hanoi, which fizzled, Mm -hmm. because when Trump went there, he said, okay, are you ready to denuclearize? And and Kim said, no, that isn't what we agreed to. And so this is what we are seeing now, a return to the possibility that the... uh, U.S. President and Kim Jong-un will continue to have some kind of a dialogue leading to a possible lowering of tensions or even uh, eventually some peace in the region. 
It's very interesting to see the differences in tone that Trump puts out there when he was at the G20, as you uh, obviously astutely pointed out, uh, you know, pulling the rug out from under Shinzo Abe uh, and kind of taking some pot shots at him over over how he feels discussions are going over defense. And then going to meet with Kim Jong-un, who, you know, is is kind of globally seen as a, as, as a villain in, in many ways and for many reasons and is very cordial with him. It, it seems it's it's really an, an inversion of, of what you would imagine. And this seems to be kind of Trump's MO if you look at how he interacts with uh, uh, Vladimir Putin from Russia. And he, d- he doesn't shy away from being friendly with controversial figures. And controversial is probably a, a generous way of describing them. Yes. Um, so the earlier question is, what did I think of the meeting? Mm-hmm. It was a grand photo op, and we hope that it'll lead to uh, something positive. In terms of uh, Trump's affinity for dealing with people such as Kim. I mean, Kim Jong-un is, is the ruler over a truly despotic state. It's a state that uh, has gigantic prisons uh, uh, networks and where the party in power is really the family in power and the leader of the family is almost uh, deified, almost semi-divine and as they portray themselves. And here comes the President of the United States. Now we can say that this is all a good thing, that this president has the courage to take on hard cases that others would not take on. That's Iran and uh, Russia, where there's a reset necessary, and with North Korea, where there's a nuclear threat. So let's give him some credit for trying. The problem with that view is he brings the world to the brink of nuclear war on the, on the way to uh, saying, okay, now, now I'm ready to talk. He, it worked with the, the North Koreans to the degree they are willing to talk, not to act, mm-hmm. but to talk. And uh, we all should feel relieved that that height of tension that was raised at the fire and fury moment when it looked as if there could actually be a war between a nuclear war breaking out in the region, and then, you know, it has been defused, so give them credit. But I've long, I've long felt the North Koreans got what they wanted. They had built up their armaments to the point, tested to the point, demonstrated to the point that they wished to say, look, world, you can't mess with us. Now I'm ready to uh, shift gears. And at that point, Donald Trump was willing to go along with it. The summit that is being discussed is meant to do, we don't know what. On the, North, on, on the American side, they had made it clear that there's supposed to be complete, verifiable denuclearization before there's a lifting of sanctions. That was before the meeting you and I are talking about. Mm -hmm. At that meeting, doesn't seem to be the case anymore. So what a lot of the press and a lot of the analysts are now saying, which makes sense, is it does now appear Donald Trump is making North Korea an accepted nuclear power and is uh, is working to deal with that reality rather than denuclearization. Hmm. It's interesting because I think that kind of lends lends to what I'll I'll say next, Dr. Tepper, is that by having the president of the United States go to them, even even just to be in the DMZ, but then as he did, he crossed over, he stepped over, he stepped back uh, from North Korean territory. It is it is lending legitimacy, and as you said, this was you know North Korea has has got what it's wanted. It's in terms of building up its arsenal, but the last thing that it probably was missing was that international acceptance, and to have the president of the United States 
you know, technically the most powerful man in the world come to you and and kind of, you know, be there on your terms almost. That is that is something in terms of of having that kind of, uh, if you will, not respectability because not everyone else is buying into it, but that acceptance then. And while there, apparently, the invitation was officially given by the president of the U.S. for Kim Jong-un to visit the White House, Uh. kind of the the ultimate uh, in acceptability uh, that we currently have in the world. Mm -hmm. So we don't really know. There was an hour-long conversation. There's an agreement to continue the talks and apparently uh, the possibility of that kind of a summit so what we have is, yes, Kim Jong-un now has a respectability and acceptability he didn't have. Xi Jinping also went for the very first time uh, to North Korea. and they, they, uh, he's, Kim Jong-un has gone several times to, to uh, visit Beijing, but mm-hmm. n- only recently. All of, there was a deep freeze, a, fr- a cold shoulder between China and North Korea, and those are the closest of allies. North Korea doesn't really have any other allies, but China was miffed and showed it. But at the same time, they do not want this regime to fail. They also don't want it to go nuclear. Mm-hmm. Now, how they're going to square that circle is a, is a delicate dance by the, by the Chinese. It, it just reminds me, like Trump, in my mind, when he gets into these situations, it feels like a bull in a china shop that's trying to weave in between the aisles of that china shop. And I'm just holding my breath, waiting for something to to crash down around him. And it, it sort of feels like Kim Jong-un, in some ways, it's it's that same unpredictability where you don't know how they'll react in certain situations, but you know that it, it has the potential for disaster. If the wrong thing is said, if, there, if there's an insult on one side or the other, you're not dealing with uh, individuals who... Uh, traditionally take a moderate approach to things. You hope that that bull in the china shop knows where it's going and has a goal <laughs> inside the shop other than to break things. Right. <laughs> so the, and, and no one is certain. No one is certain that the Americans, in fact, under this interesting uh, tactic, actually has an end game in mind. There's a possibility, and this is speculated on widely, that there's quite a division mm-hmm. between uh, the president who would like to just talk and have photo ops and get credit for defusing a crisis which he himself has helped create absolutely and and he has now said publicly repeatedly america is not interested in regime change your family your rule is not in any danger what we want is a glorious economic uh, future open up join the world and he paints a very good picture for north korea of saying you know you can really join the world and have, and this, and Kim, by the way, having achieved his goals, I think, in uh, nuclear side, has pivoted to saying what I want to do is now is deliver economics for my country. On the other hand, Bolton, who was on this same trip and was sent off to Mongolia, mm. uh, to Ulaanbaatar, long has been suspected of actually wanting nothing less than regime change in North Korea. Wow. This, it is fascinating to see how uh, the politics of this situation is rolling out the different powers that are push-pull, that factor. And it's it's been wonderful chatting with you, Dr. Tepper. Thank you for your time and your insight on this interesting matter. And we'll see what happens next. We'll see if that White House visit actually happens. Indeed. And a pleasure talking with you. You as well. Thank you so much. I know.
We need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're chatting with uh, Councillor Elizabeth Pelosa from Ward 12. Local politics now. We've gone from abroad. We're coming home to London. We're talking about uh, renovations, potential for them anyway, at White Oaks Park in the south end of the city. That's coming up on London Live on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program. It is London Live on 980 CFPL. And Mike Stubbs, your usual wonderful host, is on vacation this week. So they've let me sub in. They've put me in the other side of the talk booth. And this is why I am here speaking to you in the afternoon instead of in the mornings, uh, which is when I usually read the news with Jake Jeffrey. So bit of a bit of a role reversal. I'm in the afternoons this week. So I'm with you today, tomorrow and Thursday of this week. So yeah, I'm excited. I'm happy to be here. Next up, as I said before the break, we were talking international politics. Now we're talking about homegrown politics. And this is a cool initiative that uh, local Ward 12 Councillor Elizabeth Pelosa is, uh, you know, gathering some public feedback about. It's about a permanent stage at White Oaks Park. So that's in the south end of the city, in the White Oaks neighborhood, if you will. And she joins me on the line now to talk more about the consultations that were held uh, yesterday during Canada Day festivities. Councillor Pelosa, first of all, thanks for coming on the show and happy Canada Day, belatedly. Thanks for having me and happy candidate to you too. Thanks very much. So it was a, a busy day for you. Certainly yesterday you were out at White Oaks Park, I think from what, three until six, talking to the public about this idea. Yes. And luckily I also helped plan that event with the community council of White Oaks. So I got to be there all day. So those who weren't there during those hours, I still got to engage with them and talk about it. And it was a wonderful day. Fantastic. That's 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 really great to, first of all, have been there in the mix of everything and then uh, to have that chance for a, a more in-depth conversations. Um, but for anyone who isn't exactly, uh, you know, in the know about this uh, permanent stage that's being talked about, give us a little bit of a rundown uh, about what this project is and, and where it would be going. Yeah. So for your listeners, we White Oaks Park is the one right beside John Law Library, right behind White Oaks Mall. And every year on Canada Day, we bring in uh, a stage to use for that day. And having been with the committee, I got to see the need in the in the community. And as ward councillor, I recognize that that area of White Oaks is a very special community. We we tend to stay close to home, and even if there's multicultural things downtown, we we stay where we know. So with this outdoor stage, those who have joined us for Canada Day before, the permanent stage will go in. Basically the same location, same angle towards the hill, not towards the home. It would be an open concept stage, so new walls, but a, a roof that would provide lots of sun shelter, steel and concrete construction with lighting and security cameras. And the hope of that stage is that people could use it for local food events, multicultural festivals, maybe some outdoor farmer's market stuff. A uh, young fellow asked if we could do a winter carnival. He said, there's no winter carnivals in town. Can we have something? It's like, for sure. Like, a great idea. Um, the library is there as well, so there could be some opportunities for outdoor programming with the library. Someone asked if there could be a theater or a little place on the stage, and it'll be a 20 by 30 stage, so certainly lots of space for those events. Someone asked if we could do more outdoor movie nights, you know, hang a curtain and use the stage for that. Someone asked if they could do you know, some picnicking right there because it's right close to the play structures and they can watch their kids. And for sure, like it would just be an open concept stage with lots of flexibility for programming. Sounds great. And and now in terms of uh, the cost, there is an interesting uh, point about this because it sounds like whatever it would be costing, there's going to be a lot from donations. And, and it's something that, you know, it's it sounds like it's going to be uh, fairly doable. Yeah, lucked out that by chance I was talking to Ali Sufan, who actually grew up in the area, 
and said it'd be nice if we could have something just so people could stay in their community, in their neighborhoods. And being a local boy himself back in the day, he wanted to partner, and he's actually gathering his partners in the construction industry. So he's leading as the builder and bringing in his contacts, and they are going to completely fund the stage themselves. So all all donated, and it'll be about a quarter of a million dollars. Fantastic. That's fantastic to hear of, you know, Londoners giving back uh, to the community that they've grown up in and that they've made their lives in. And it's just a really neat initiative that, you know, people don't have to say, yeah, it's nice, but the price tag is too much. Like, yes, it's nice. And yes, it's going to happen is is a great thing to be able to say. Yeah. And we're certainly rolling into our next four year budget cycle. And we know things are going to be tight. And there's always things you'd like to do. So this really allowed us to do something extra for the community. And it actually was interesting when I started talking to other members of the community who've been there for a long time, said actually this idea was original about 30 years ago when that community centre was actually funded privately as well. The local community council of White Oaks fundraised uh, a lot in the community and built it. And this big round was always left flat, hoping that one day there'd be a stage, but the funds didn't last long enough to build it. So they said you're actually helping bring the vision full circle after all these years. Fantastic. I love hearing that when things kind of come to fruition the way that they always were intended to. It's neat. It's neat to see that uh, that community get a really neat feature that they were supposed to have. And, and now, you know, long time coming, but it's here, or it will be at least. Is Quickly before I let you go, is there a bit of a timeline in terms of when this is actually going to get uh, like shovels in the ground sort of thing? Yeah, so we're just collecting other ideas of what people might want to use it for so we can make sure to incorporate that, incorporate that back into the design process. The city does three months of public consultation and the big cycle up of a planning application. They'll ask the neighboring street residents of what their thoughts are, if they have concerns, what, what they might want to see or not see in the stage. And then the hope is to build it this fall once construction crews need, need some more work because the summer construction's done, that they can be employed doing that. In the spring, we plant all the grass to give it a chance to take hold before we host Canada Day again next year. Fantastic. Well, we will keep our eyes eagerly upon that spot in uh, in White Oaks in the in the South London area, and uh, it's it's just an exciting event. And I think it's it's really neat that uh, you know you'll be able to host a whole host of events at that stage in the in the in the year that comes. Even you know it won't be that long, as you said, before you see uh, that stage going up, and it's very exciting. So, congrats on uh, making this happen, and with the help of the community and and uh, all of the developers who are, are helping out with it. It sounds really cool. Yes, thank you. We're very excited for it. Absolutely. Well, Councillor Peloza, thanks so much for your time this afternoon. Thank you and have a wonderful day. You as well. We need to take a quick break for news with Jacqueline LaBelle. We will be back on London Live on 980 CFPL. Hello, hello. Welcome back to London Live on 980 CFPL. This is your Tuesday afternoon edition of the show. If you're feeling a little out of sorts after the long weekend, you're not alone. I know a lot of us here in the newsroom kept thinking it was Monday. It is not. Thankfully, it's Tuesday. So I'm calling it Fake Monday. Which, which is fine when you realize that it is, in fact, Tuesday and you are one day closer to the weekend <laughs> after our long weekend. Hopefully you had a really nice time of it uh, and got to celebrate responsibly and safely and got in a lot of rest and relaxation. Fingers crossed for you. I hope that was the case. It was for me. So I feel very lucky that that is the case. So before uh, Mike Stubbs went on uh, vacation last week, you might have heard me do a little crossover segment with him on Friday afternoon, talking A, about his uh, plans for vacation this week a little bit, but also this story that just captured my attention 
and then others in the newsroom. And we just like I just lost it. I was floored by this story that first kind of emerged on Thursday. And it has to do with the Dalai Lama. Mm -hmm. You would not think necessarily a controversial figure, I guess. Maybe some people find him controversial. Before this, I never did. Nah, never. He seemed like a wise supreme being. You know, Buddhist monk, very wise, very sage, puts out a lot of, you know, nice things to say about peace and love and acceptance and all that good stuff. All the things that we as people should strive to be. Well... My opinions on this matter perhaps changed a little bit after this story that kind of broke on Thursday has to do with claims that were originally, I guess, somewhat originally surfaced in 2015 in a BBC interview where he was asked if he felt uh, that his successor, the next Dalai Lama, his reincarnated self, could come back as a female. And he said, yeah, sure, they could be a woman, but they must be very attractive or she would not be of much use. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So in this most recent interview, again, that was published on Thursday, uh, we have audio of it, and producer Kelly is going to play it for you in a second. Uh, He doubles down. He's asked about this. This is about a minute-long clip. You once said that you would um, be open to uh, a female successor. That's also possible. You also told um, one of my colleagues that that female must be attractive Otherwise, it's not much use. Okay, yes. Can you see that, why that, that comment that, upset that, a lot of women? That's one time. If female dilemma comes, and it should be more attractive. If female dilemma, oh, oh God. <laughs> that people, I think, prefer not see uh, that face. Can you see why a lot of women, though, found that quite offensive when you said it? So one Indian, you see... Uh, because of some complaint about my sort of, that sort of my expression. But okay, I think they themselves, I think uh, if there's opportunity to ask whether they spend some money for makeup, I think they must do something. A lot of women would say that's objectifying women. Mm-hmm. A lot of women would say that that's objectifying women. This woman would say that that's objectifying women. It's very upsetting. London, I was so upset about this. If you heard the segment with Mike, you could tell I was not pleased. Now, in this interview, in that that's just an excerpt. It's a minute long of, of what the interview, it's just a, a fraction of the amount that he spoke. Um, and he also said in that interview that inner beauty is the thing to really really strive for and aspire for. But you know what? Why say one thing and then another? Like, don't. That's like talking out of both sides of your face. And all speaking of the face, when he said, you can't have a dead face, no one wants a dead face, he literally like screwed up his face into like a, ooh, a disgusting look. And I was like, are you kidding me? Seriously, Dalai Lama? Really? You're supposed to be the supreme, most serene being in the universe, like so chill, so zen, and this is the crap that we're coming out with? Come on, come on. So today, there was a statement on the Dalai Lama.com, or Dalai Lama.com, I should say, His Holiness the 14th Dalai Lama of Tibet, his official website. And uh, I'll read you just a little bit. Remarks made by His Holiness the Dalai Lama during a recent BBC interview have caused disquiet that we felt it was important to address. Just quiet is a good way of putting it. Firstly, in responding to a question about whether his own reincarnation could be a woman and suggesting that if she were, she should be attractive, His Holiness genuinely meant no offense. 
He is deeply sorry that people have been hurt by what he said and others, and offers, rather, his sincere apologies. His Holiness consistently emphasizes the need for people to connect with each other on a deeper human level, rather than getting caught up in preconceptions based on superficial appearances. Uh Uh-huh. This is something everyone who has the chance to meet with him recognizes and appreciates. The original context of his referring to the physical appearance of a female successor was a conversation with the then-Paris editor of Vogue magazine, who he had invited His Holiness in 1992 to guest edit the next edition. Okay, so let me get this straight. The comments originated from 1992. He doubled down in 2015, and he tripled down in 2019. And now that there's been some backlash because of the changing times, thank God for that, um, he's now backtracking. I don't I don't know. I don't like it. Dalai Lama, this is a Dalai don't for me. I don't like it. I don't think that most people appreciate it, hence why there was so much backlash. And it just honestly, like, I don't know. Do I want to be too hard on the Dalai Lama? But this sort of thing, like in his statement, which goes on at length, um, it talks about how he champions, uh, you know, and and calls for more women in leadership. And I've read out a couple of tweets from the Dalai Lama last week on Friday when I was talking with Mike. I won't uh, I won't do them again, but they are essentially just putting forward this belief that, yes, we need to have more females in leadership roles. Yes, we need to have uh, hygiene of the mind, emotional hygiene, where we are putting out good, positive, uh, you know, interpretations of how we should live our lives and not be negative and not focus on superficial things. I just I don't understand how, you know, someone could say something like that. Even in this statement, the apology, it says sometimes things are basically like lost in translation and that if he's in a a different environment, sometimes the humor of a statement is lost between languages, perhaps. I don't know. I just I think that that's a really outdated idea to have. And maybe it's a joke, but I think we're fed up of jokes like that, like really and truly enough already. And this idea that if someone's going to be in a position of leadership, they got to be cute. Come on, Dalai Lama, look in the mirror. I'm not the only one saying it. Just rethink it. And I think he obviously has. But this idea that, you know, oh, yes, I said a bad thing. Sorry, but look at all these other great things I do. It's just, come on, come on. Just reminds me of individuals who say horrific racist things and then say, oh, but I have so many friends who are of a minority group or whatever as a way to try and prove that they have not just espoused something like terrible. It just drives me crazy. It gets me to be very upset, as you can tell, (laughs) as this is now the second day that I've talked about it. But I just, you know, it's one of those things where enough is enough. And hopefully this is a chastening moment for his holiness. Come on. Because if you want to talk about, you know, loving all beings and not being superficial and, and really tapping into the things that matter most, you also have to walk the walk, Dalai Lama, which I never, ever thought that I would have to say of the Dalai Lama. It's just disappointing, you know, like when you find out that someone you really respect holds a terrible belief. It's like, you know, if the supreme being, his holiness, is susceptible to sexism, what hope do we have from anybody else? It's it's, it's disappointing. Perhaps I'm a bit jaded now. <sighs> it's brutal. Ugh. Anyway, that's my rant. I promise I probably am not going to talk about this again on air, but I just felt like it needed some extra attention. And at least there is an update to the story that there has been an apology that for this disquiet, quote unquote, that has come about because of the statements first in 92, then in 2015, then in 2019. So I don't know. Seems like these are pretty long held beliefs, but he's issued a statement. I'll give him that. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, a little bit lighter fare, 
uh, producer Jacqueline Carbone is going to join me in this discussion, as is producer Kelly, I think. Uh, We're talking about funny holidays that maybe are not official. Like, do you celebrate half birthdays? I do. I'm going to tell you about that when we come back on London Live on 980 CFPL. Hello and welcome back to the program. This is London Live on 980 CFPL, your Tuesday afternoon edition. It's the day after Canada Day. Now, I've had I've joked about this with a couple of people already, that it feels like we should have a name for the day after Canada Day. Like, you know, after Christmas Day, you have Boxing Day because now everyone's kind of like getting out of the long weekend. It's like, oof, you're confused about what day it is. It feels like it should be something special. Now, yesterday, July 1st, clearly was Canada Day. Guess what? It also was London. <laughs> drum roll, drum roll. It was my half birthday. Ha ha. People are like, what? You're how old and you celebrate a half birthday? <laughs> Not for real. Only like partially. <laughs> it's a joke. It kind of started like when I was very young, obviously. And my mother, bless her soul, is adorable. And she made me a cake every once in a while when I was little on my half birthday, Canada Day. I mean, there's no bad time for cake. First of all, never. Why not? And this is uh, producer extraordinaire Jacqueline Carbone who's in with me. In no, no, that's perfect. I love it. Um, and we have producer, obviously Kelly Wong, who's going to chime in with some of her thoughts in a, in a minute or two here too. She's on the other side of the glass. But yeah, when I was little, I would get like a little half birthday sort of celebration. My dad clearly thought it was ridiculous, but he went along with it because he's a good sport. And uh, this year, I didn't really know for sure that my mom was going to do it, but she made me a cake. Nice. <laughs> nice. A little half cake for my half birthday, which is super sweet. Is so it's like the first time in a while? Yeah. Like? Yeah. It's old years and years. It's, oh, gosh. Mom, how long has it been since you made me a cake for my half birthday? <laughs> Probably like since I was in the single digits of age and I'm well into the double digits now. <laughs> we won't say exactly how old I am, but uh, not that I'm shy about it. It's no big deal. Aging is fine. Um you know, whatever. But yeah, so I got a cake for my half birthday and I was really excited about it. Super cute. And uh, it kind of got us to talking a little bit in the newsroom about other celebrations that aren't necessarily like official because how many people in their right mind celebrate a half birthday? Me. Uh, right mind is questionable, secretly, I suppose. Secretly they do it. Yeah, secretly. It's kind of cool. Like I'm down for anything that's a little bit of whimsy. It makes life more fun. So why not do it? It's not hurting anybody to have a half birthday. I agree. Why not? So yeah, so Jacqueline, you and your family, you mark certain things as well, right? Yeah, so we don't, uh, I don't think we mark like half birthdays. <laughs> I haven't really done that. Um, but my mom, literally every single month, starting on January 25th, <laughs> will post on all her social media and like announce it to the world that it is 11 months till Christmas. And oh then in my March, God. she will announce that it is 10 months till Christmas. And or February, or in yeah. February, sorry, I'm bad with the months. That's all right. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, so like every month. So uh, I think last week she was like, six months till Christmas get oh, your like start shopping Louise. right and everybody's like <laughs> people comment they're like oh my god not this again like her friends or whatever right <laughs> and then other people will say like well at least it's a heads up to get your start your shopping That's going right. right so um I don't know. It's just a fun thing that she does. And I think she knows that it kind of like, I don't know if it gets on people's nerves, but yeah, it makes her shtick. It, it's like, her it, thing. And like you said, it's a little whimsy. It's a little funny, yeah. right? Like people, uh, it doesn't hurt anybody. And uh, who exactly. doesn't want a reminder that it's six months till Christmas? Well, as long, hey, I'm fine with the reminder of, of Christmas. And like, I like snow. 
for Christmas. I do. But I, at this moment, I'm still like in shell shock from the winter. I'm still very excited <laughs> that we have a hot weather right now. But uh, it looks like, Kelly, what's what's up with you, you and your family? Do you have anything like this? I wish my half birthday could be my real birthday. And I wish I could actually celebrate it because my birthday is November 8th. But my half birthday would be May 8th, which is like the beginning of spring. It's my favorite season. So Mama Brady is the sweetest for celebrating your birthday, Jess. Um, <laughs> my family doesn't really do any weird holidays. But I got to say, did you guys know that? Um, National Fried Chicken Day and National Kiss Day are on the same day. Anyway, that's a little off topic, but I do my I love I love fried chicken, so I always try to eat fried chicken on National Fried Chicken Day. Well, why not? Exactly. Well, then yeah, well, we do. I should clarify. Jacqueline Carbone is a vegan, so she probably hey, would not subscribe I to that. I would not do that, but you do you, Kelly. You do you. <laughs> I know I definitely like to celebrate those like those weird national or international holidays and like everybody's like it's National Sibling Day and you're like I love my brother today only like yeah stuff like it's that. funny well it's sort of like we were also talking about like pet birthdays oh, yes. and like our our two family dogs dearly departed you know we wish them well in in doggy heaven uh, but we always remember what their birthdays were and today is our first dog's birthday Yogi he was born in ninety seven. I don't know. My mom's probably yelling at the radio hearing this, being like, no, it was this year. And then our other dog, his birthday was December the 9th. But you do this with mostly with your dogs, not so much your cats, right, Yeah, Jacqueline? I feel really bad about this because I know my, my dog, my my family dog's birthday, Charlie, it's on November 16th. And he gets a little cake and he gets his little like sweet potato cookie or whatever it is, right? And it's super adorable. He put a little hat on and then our, our cats are just like there. <laughs> like, But I think it's different because we got Charlie from like, uh, we ended up like adopting him from another family. So they had like all the details, whereas mm-hmm. like with my cats, like my cousins have, like live on a barn. So we just go there and just like pick up the cats yeah. and bring them home. Right. So you don't really know the dates. So we're just like, we think they're nine years old. Yeah, we roughly. About this. My mom's really a lot better with it. Um, but yeah, even my cat at home, like like me and my partner have Zelda. She uh, I think she's like nine or ten now, but we also just adopted her. I think I could find out. Yeah. But I don't know why. I just feel I just don't mark the cat's birthdays. They deserve it just as much as all wow. the other animals. I know. I'm going to jump in here because my mom texted me. (laughs) She says, you're right. I'm yelling. It was 1996. (laughs) So on this day in 1996, our beautiful dog Yogi was born and he was beautiful and lovely. (laughs) But yeah, I I don't know. (laughs) R.I.P. He was a good boy. The goodest of boys. Um, But yeah, no, it's it's just funny what people like their little traditions in their families. And yeah, like if it's silly, I I think it's hilarious. So I'm going to throw this open to Londoners and I don't know I don't know if you are going to feel like sharing you can use a fake name if you're like embarrassed about whatever the fake holiday is that you <laughs> you mark but call us 643-2222 that's 519-643-2222 or if you're listening from a far flung location and want to call us toll free that's 1-866-354-8255 1-866-354-8255 I just I love pet birthdays and things like that you see memes so cute it's so on, just so pure it's you know? so cute like, pets aren't doing anything they're just they're, they're just, just loving life love and life loving their people on, yeah but they like the treats absolutely <laughs> who doesn't like treats like a half cake thanks mom <laughs> well if you have any thoughts on fake holidays or unique holidays that you celebrate with your family again you can hit us up 643-2222 or you can actually uh tweet at me my handle is Jess brady 980 so you can give me a shout there if you wanted to share your silly, fun holiday. Kelly, any thoughts on any last things for your holiday stuff? No? I got to say, I wish I had a pet so I could jump in and say something about pet <laughs> birthdays. But um, I had a hamster when I was a kid. Nice. And I... 
don't remember their birthday because I guess for hamsters it's a little hard to keep track of yeah. birthdays. But I remember he passed away on Valentine's Day, <gasps> which is sad because it's Valentine's Day, and Valentine's Day is also the year my family and I arrived in Canada. So it's always been a little hard for me to celebrate ever since then because it's like a anniversary to our journey in Canada. But at the same time, I, like my little precious fuzzy balls, uh, he passed away. That's <sighs> tough. That's it. You're in a tough situation there. I would say. Maybe, and maybe you already do this, and it's probably not my place to, to give you advice on how to celebrate, but I would say celebrate your arrival in the journey and then honor the, the hamster. That seems fair. And, yeah. I agree. That's, thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and on that bombshell note, um, <laughs> we do need to take a really quick break. Uh, Kelly and Jacqueline, thank you so much for your input on this. I appreciate you coming on and, and chatting with me about half birthdays, pet birthdays, all those celebrations, and uh, for humoring me in this. Anytime. Thank you. <laughs> all right. We'll be right back on London Live on 980 CFPL. Welcome back. We are just plumb out of time. I think we only have a minute or so left in the show before we hand things over to Jacqueline LaBelle for the afternoon news. Thanks so much to all of my guests who uh, came on the program today and uh, chatted about news that's happening here in London and abroad and uh, just all the stuff that's been going on since the long weekend. I hope that the start of your week has been gentle, hasn't been too tough as you get back into things, and uh, that you have a lovely rest of your afternoon and a great evening. I will be back tomorrow uh, to chat with you more about uh, what's happening here at home and around the world. We'll see what's on the docket tomorrow. But that's it from me. Thanks so much to super producer Kelly Wong and to Jacqueline Carbone, who came in and chatted about our fun holidays. And uh, we will see you all tomorrow at one o'clock in the afternoon on London Live on 980 CFPL.